Well, stocks under pressure, but closing well off the session lows after weak China data and another ratings agency warning that shook sentiment. That is the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. John Ford is off today. We've got a big hour coming your way with earnings results from Lyft, Take-Two, Twilio, Rivian, and a stealth AI winner, maybe not so stealthy, Supermicro, which is up more than 300% this year. Plus, we'll talk to the CEO of chipmaker Global Foundries, which reported numbers this morning and saw a big intraday comeback. We'll be joined by the head of real estate firm Silverstein Properties as well, following that warning from Moody's about bank exposure to commercial real estate. But first, let's get straight to our market panel, shall we? Joining us now is G-Squared Private Wealth CIO and CNBC contributor Victoria Green and Northwestern Wealth Management CIO Brent Schutte. Good afternoon to you both. Uh, Victoria, I'll start with you. The pullback we've seen overall over the past week and a half uh, in stocks right now. Is that warranted? Does it have further to go? Oh, absolutely warranted. I think we got very overbought. August and September are the weakest uh, seasonal periods of the year. Plus, you got everybody still on vacation here in August so far. So I think you're just seeing a little bit of a breather. I think we we got very overbought, priced to perfection. There are still a lot of macro headwinds, and everything's pricing in this golden road, golden path, you know, soft landing, no problems, anything whatsoever, priced to perfection. So I think it is a little bit warranted. We might see a little more downward pressure. We're through the mega caps reporting. So now you're catalyst, you know, start to turn to macro, which data has been a little bit mixed lately. And we'll have to see what these ratings downgrades have to bring. And if we do have any any more problems out of Washington, any more shutdowns uh, and anything over the, the debt sending that they really need to get under control. Yeah. Uh, Brent, why do you get your thoughts here on, on, on equities? I know you've been underweight. Are you convinced that a soft landing is afoot or not so much? Not so much. I, I still think we're all getting impatient waiting for the recession to happen because we've been thinking about it since the Fed started hiking rates, and that was only about 16 months ago. Look, CPI has come down much as we forecasted. That's been the good news and the tailwind that we were overweight equities because we thought that would lift the market higher. Unfortunately, I still think the Fed is worried about wage price growth, which is still too high and not consistent with 2% inflation. And so they're going to keep that liquidity tourniquet on until they see wages fall. And if you look historically, the only way that wages have sustainably fallen is through a recession, which I still think is the most likely outcome in the coming months, which will put downside pressure on equity markets. Yeah, it'll put downside pressure on equity markets. You could argue that the the market is is too richly valued if you were actually going to see a recession, even if it was short, even if it was mild. Uh, We've got our first earnings report out, and that is Rivian. Phil Lebeau has those results. Hang tight, uh, team. We're going to go to Phil now for, for Rivian. Morgan, these are better than expected results from Rivian with the company uh, posting a narrower than expected loss of $1.80 a share. The street was expecting, whoop, helps to put on the microphone. There we go. We'll put the microphone on. How's this? All right. Rivian posting better than expected results with a loss of $1.08 a share versus the street expecting $1.41 a share loss. Rivian's revenues coming in better than expected at $1.12 billion, slightly better than the expectation. The gross profit per vehicle up $35,000 compared to the first quarter. They're still losing money on their vehicles, but they have cut that loss dramatically. Gross margin, negative 37% compared to negative 
193% in the uh, second quarter of last year. Free cash flow for the second floor, so quarter, negative $1.61 billion versus negative $1.56 billion a year ago. The guidance is what's going to get the most attention. They are raising their production guidance for 2023. It previously was for 50,000 vehicles. They now expect to build 52,000 vehicles, lowering their adjusted EBITDA loss guide to $4.2 billion. Previously, they expected to lose $4.3 billion for the year, and their CapEx guidance drops to $1.7 billion to be spent this year, as opposed to $2 billion being spent this year. Overall, better than expected numbers, and that's the reason shares of Rivian moving higher. You don't want to miss what we uh, have tomorrow on Squawk Box. It is a first on CNBC interview with Rivian CEO RJ Scaringe. We'll talk to him about the second quarter. Uh, he said that they were building momentum and execution was improving, the supply chain was improving, and that's what we see in the results. Morgan, back to you. All right, Phil Lebeau, thank you. And those shares are up about 3% right now in after-hours trading. Victoria, I want to get your response to that, um, because this this is something that the street was looking for, uh, an, an increase to guidance, both in terms of production and also uh, in terms of hemorrhaging or staving off some of these <laughs> losses, a, a path towards profitability, though I know we still have a long way to go there. I think hemorrhaging was the right term. Anytime you have negative billion free cash flow, that kind of makes my soul hurt a little bit. But absolutely, 50 to 52,000 is great. The street had been wanting them to update their numbers for a while. You know, they sell these for 90 to 100,000 a vehicle. One of the questions was going to be if they're going to have to make any price cuts because obviously those tax credits get capped at 80,000. And we've seen a couple of manufacturers trying to lower prices on trucks and SUVs to get underneath that cap limit. Uh, But honestly, it's good news. And it seems this trend is going the right direction. They're still a, an emerging company. You know, they still have a lot of headwinds, especially if the EV market softens. But for now, that's great. I, I didn't see the number if they produced 11,600, 12,000 vehicles. I'm not sure exactly where production came in. But the good news is they're progressing forward and putting together sequ- sequentially better returns, but still hemorrhaging. And I think if we do have any macro headwinds, Rivian's going to run into that wall because they're just not as well capitalized as a GM or a Ford, but definitely positive. And they may get a little reward from the street. We will caution, Street hasn't necessarily done beats very well. It's, it's a little bit like that Shania Twain song that don't impress me much. You know, so the, we haven't seen the historical price volatility either up or down you usually would see in an earnings beat. So we'll see how this holds overnight and, and what Wall Street thinks tomorrow. Yeah, and it's a good point you make. Uh, we've got more earnings. Lyft. Those results are out. Leslie Picker has the numbers. Hey, Morgan. The market likes what it sees here after increasing 5% in regular trading up nearly 13% on these earnings here, a sizable bottom line beat for Lyft, reporting 16 cents per share on an adjusted basis, where analysts were expecting a loss of one cent per share. Lyft matched the street on the top line. The number of active riders is at its highest level in nearly three years, 21 and a half million. But monetization of those rides has come down with the revenue per active rider at $47.51. That's about 5% lower than last year due to pricing dynamics. Our producer, Laura Batchelor, spoke with CEO David Risher, who told her that Lyft's market share ticked up two percentage points to 32 percent quarter over quarter. He also said that driver supply has been strong with more drivers this quarter than they've had in about three years, up 20 percent from the same period last year. Q4 revenue growth outlook a bit lower than the street expected. If we want to be kind of picky here uh, and look for some weakness in the report, EBITDA margin guidance roughly in line, but still shares up more than 12 percent on uh, a very, very solid bottom line beat here, Morgan. Got it. All right. 
Leslie Picker, thank you. Victoria, I want to get your response to this, too, because th- these are two different names where we're talking about path to profitability uh, in a market where we have much higher interest rates than we saw a year ago, but there has been a lot of FOMO uh, afoot as well. <laughs> yeah, and you've seen that this last month with everybody starting to pile into Lyft, even though it's trailing Uber. Uber has about the 70% market share. Lyft is trying so hard with discounting to get more riders and get more drivers. It'll be interesting to see how long they can, say, can sustain this if they're having to take kind of this profit hit to in order to build their business, get their marketing out there, get more riders attracted. Uh, I always kind of refer to them as, you know, Uber's kind of annoying little brother. Uh, and they really have kind of struggled to get the momentum and they don't have the scale Uber has. So I think this is positive. Obviously, the street loves the fact they added riders and added drivers. Now we want to see better revenue coming from them, which means they're going to have to come out that discounted pricing. And that'll be key if they can sustain this momentum or if you start to see calling the market shift back over to Uber. So definitely might see a nice pop tomorrow. Just a little bit of a question of if you're having to discount this much to get your riders, how long can you sustain it? Yeah, we're seeing a pop in Lyft right now, and actually Rivian has turned lower. Twilio earnings are out as well. Steve Kovac has those numbers. Hi, Steve. Yeah, Morgan. So shares falling despite a beat on the top and bottom line for Twilio. It's down about a percent here. It's down more than that just a few minutes ago. Uh, but EPS coming in at 54 cents adjusted. Street was looking for 30 cents. And revenue also a beat $1.04 billion versus the $986 million the street was looking for. And it's that revenue guidance for the third quarter that seems to be dragging shares down here slightly. Uh, they're guiding towards 980 to 990 million. Street was looking for just above a billion dollars in revenue for the current quarter. Morgan, back to you. Okay. Shares now, are, shares positive now. That's right. I was just going to say that we're bouncing around here with shares of Twilio. Steve Kovac, thank you. Brent, I want to get your thoughts on, we were just talking about it before the earnings parade started here, uh, but the fact that the market is basically priced to perfection, um, Valuations, especially if you are forecasting for even just a mild recession later this year or into next year, are are arguably stretched here. Um, And what it's taking in this earnings season, which has been better than expected, and we're seeing it case in point right now with some of these reports, uh, that even as you're having earnings better than expected, uh, the market wants more. Yeah, well, I think the bar was pretty low, and I think you've seen the market rally quite a bit, which is obviously the reason why the market wants a little bit more in the future, because the the bar has been raised. I mean, we came into earnings seasons. A lot of people thought that earnings would be falling quite a lot, and they haven't. And that's been the backdrop to push the stock market higher. I I think two important things that I took out of those earnings. In the first one, Rivian, the word supply chain healing was mentioned. In the second one, more drivers, a.k.a. more workers. Mm. And so I think there has been good news, but how much more can that drive If you're running out of workers, if you're near the end of an economic cycle, the economy is kind of back to where it was in 2019. We've gone through the disequilibrium. Now we're moving back to where we were. And that was an economy late in an economic cycle, which I think is where we are right now, which to me means we have to clean the economic cycle a bit uh, and kind of start all over. And that's why I think there's going to be a recession and why I think there's going to be some downward pressure, but certainly not a ton of downward pressure on the equity markets. Uh, But at four to five percent in bonds, I'm happy to sit there for a while or at least make sure that I have an allocation of that in my portfolio because that doesn't sound bad for the next six to nine months in my estimation. Got it. There's some uh, actionable takeaways for our viewers. Well, super micro earnings are out as well. Kate Rogers has those numbers. Hi, Kate. 
Hey there, Morgan. A beat on the top and bottom lines here. Adjusted EPS $3.51. That is higher than the $2.96 estimated by analysts. Revenue is also a beat $2.18 billion for the quarter versus estimates of $2.08 billion. The company's CEO saying we continue to see unprecedented demand for AI and other advanced applications requiring optimized rack scale solutions, but guidance for Q4 just slightly above the company's previously stated range. The stock is up more than 300% year to date, but a little lower on this report, perhaps uh, investors were looking for higher guidance than given, Morgan. Back over to you. Yeah, it goes back to what we were just talking about. Kate Rogers, thank you. Take two interactive earnings route. Steve Kovac, double duty. He's got those numbers. I'm back. And look, uh, shares are up. Uh, they were up about 5%, now up about 3.5%. Uh, we got EPS here, not comparable to estimates, but coming in at $1.22. And revenues generally in line with estimates at $1.2 billion. Street was looking for $1.21 billion there, Morgan. And they're reaffirming their full-year guidance. Last quarter, they gave really bullish guidance, kind of implying that a new Grand Theft Auto game is on the horizon here in the next year or so. So that's expected to be a big moneymaker. Just reaffirming that guidance there. That's probably why shares are up here uh, 3.3% right now, Morgan. Back to you. All right. Steve, thank Great you. Thing. All right. I want to get some takeaways, final takeaways, final thoughts from Victoria and Brent. Victoria, let's go to you first. Yeah, I think you need to digest these carefully. It's all about the guidance. I think it's what can they do for you going forward uh, and really stick to quality. If we come up, we were higher and longer in rates. You want companies that can issue debt, that can sustain if there is a little bit of a revenue hit, if inflation picks back up. So I think you want to be, be a little careful reaching for those 300 plus, you know, kind of bubbly, frothy stocks right now, because it just might be so hard to ma- maintain that momentum. And even a beat, if you look at some of those, when you're priced that high, even a beat is a disappointment. So just be careful chasing into some of those high multiples. Okay. Brent, final thought from you? Yeah, similar type of a commentary. I mean, to me, the market has come a long way on the back of falling inflation, or in this case, as the Rivian uh, numbers talked about, supply chains that were back to normal, and, and we talked about more workers coming back. That's been the good news. I think the good news is is that is there. The bad news is that I don't think that we're going to get away without having a recession, which I think is a headwind for the markets pushing forward uh, and why I think that investors should make sure that they have bonds as a hedge against downside risk in their portfolios. Okay. Brent Schutte and Victoria Green, thanks for kicking off the hour with me with all the major averages finishing today lower. The S&P down four-tenths of 1%, 44.99 is a level there. Senior Markets Commentator Michael Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange with key levels to watch on the S&P 500. Speaking of, Mike. Yeah, Morgan, as we track what seems to be perhaps a little bit of a consolidation phase, maybe a budding pullback. It's been a little bit stubborn, though, kind of firm in this 4,500 area. But I had the 50-day moving average in here. That is the sort of general sort of short to intermediate term trend line. And a decline to that level or even a little bit through it, as you see back here, would be relatively routine in the context of an uptrend. So uh, it's a couple percent down from here. Right now, it's not really doing much. I have been pointing out, too, though, we've been around these levels for going on four weeks. Right back to the last CPI report, that was July 12th. You know, we've sort of flattened out right here. So, so far, it seems fairly textbook, not that much to be concerned about. But, of course, always, once you, you know, introduce a little bit of turbulence, things can get knocked uh, off course more. 
Now, there are a lot of divergence as well underneath the surface. Take a look at Apple shares, which, of course, massive upside leaders. I kept pointing out the crazy linear advance that that stock had for most of, uh, of this year. That's a pretty sharp break. It's gotten below some, some of these trend lines, and it's almost come back in line with the equal weighted S&P 500 on a one-year uh, basis, not so much on a year-to-date. So a lot of that outperformance, a lot of that uh, kind of stretched action relative to the average stock has been unwound at this point. So far, the broad market is able to absorb it. Microsoft also in the midst of a relatively uh, meaty downturn as well. So we'll see if, uh, if we can continue to have these isolated pullbacks or if the entire market might need to retrench a bit. Uh, I love that you are continuing this theme of Apple versus the SPX, <laughs> which you and I have talked about quite a bit in the past couple of days and really quite a bit over the past couple yeah. of years in general. But to your point, the idea that, and Bespoke pointed this out today, that Apple's oversold and actually Microsoft is arguably oversold. And you've seen this bifurcation or this divergence, I should say, among the mega cap tech names here. I, I just wonder how sustainable that is, how often yeah. we see something like that. I mean, that's the magic of a bull market, which is, you know, things can uh, can sort of go wrong temporarily. And then by the time you notice that maybe that's a big risk, they get oversold. And all of a sudden you have some some value buyers coming in. We don't know if it's going to play out that way. Arguably, the Nasdaq 100 got a little bit farther uh, to the upside and an overshoot than, than just that we've taken care of so far. But at this point, uh, there's nothing that unusual happening below the surface. You saw what happened with the regional banks today. Pretty big decline, recaptured most of the morning losses. Uh, not most, about half of it by the, uh, by the close. So uh, market's not buckling uh, too easily right here. We'll see if that continues. All right, Mike, we'll see you later in the hour. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk to the CEO of chip company Global Foundries about today's earnings report that initially sent shares lower before an intraday recovery and the outlook for chip demand. Plus, much more on all of today's after-hours movers, including what a Lyft analyst wants to hear from the company's new CEO on the earnings call. You can see those shares are about 10% right now. We're back in two. Welcome back to Overtime. Global Foundry is closing higher today after a lower open following results this morning. The company topping street estimates for second quarter sales, but issuing weaker than expected revenue guidance for Q3. Nonetheless, you can see shares there finishing today up one and a half percent. Joining us now, Thomas Caulfield, Global Foundry's CEO. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Morgan. Great to be here. All right. So I, I do want to I do want to start more macro here because you did talk about cyclical headwinds and continued macro uncertainty. What are you seeing more broadly across the different markets and end markets that you supply into? And, and when do you expect that stabilization in some of those key markets to actually manifest? I think we can put it in two buckets. The first one being general consumer spend. I think the macroeconomic environment is not conducive to consumer spending on on, on technology. I think uh, maybe more about trips and vacations and, and things of that nature. And so once that once we don't have the consumer participating at the level we need, we find this malaise we're in now. Now, the other end of that, there's two really important markets, the automotive market and industrial. And those two markets have been strong and offsetting some of the weakness we've been seeing. Yeah. Um, do you expect that strength in the auto market to continue? I guess how much is that a reflection of the uh, de-snarling of the supply chain that, that we've seen in autos over the last couple of years uh, and, and the normalization of supply chain uh, versus a reflection of future demand? I think there's three components to that. There's a certain amount of getting caught up. And in some cases, there are components that haven't got caught up. Uh, there's one where the auto industry uh, believes a better inventory management 
where it's not just just in time, but uh, a little bit more inventory uh, preserves the fact that they can ship a fifty or sixty thousand dollar car, not because they're missing a you know a, a five dollar chip. And then the last part of that is, while units are flat in, in car sales, content is growing uh, at a very steep rate, fifteen percent compounded. And so when you combine all those together, you know get still a little bit behind, wanting to have higher inventory levels to protect shipments, and the fact that content is growing, I think that's what you know, keeps the auto industry very strong going forward. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about data center because we've seen it not just at Global Foundries, but really throughout this earnings cycle, some softness in data centers. We've seen hyperscalers uh, continuing to tighten belts uh, amid this uncertain macro environment and, and, and more cost restraints. Is the expectation that that begins to shift now in terms of future spending, especially as you do start to see more focus uh, and more spending on things like AI? I think that's the catalyst for the data center is AI. And, uh, you know, for GF, when we think of AI, we, we, we see three areas that can drive additional business for us in the future. The first is traditional data center. Uh, power and power management and connectivity are key features data centers need beyond that, that processing horsepower you hear from uh, the hyperscalers they're looking to do. And we have silicon photonics technology and power management technology that that feed well into the data center. But the two other elements that we get to address is in our f essential chip deployment, the, the feature-rich semiconductors we provide are really well-tuned for intelligence at the edge. The billions and billions of devices that will be connected that need to leverage uh, uh, AI at the edge, intelligence at the edge. What will these devices do? The cloud will do all the machine learning and creating the algorithms. The inference or the actions on that, those models will take place at the edge. GF has the technologies that will help do that inference at the edge, take that data, parse the data, compress it, send it to the cloud to that iterative uh, virtual cycle or virtuous cycle of getting more and more models, more refined, taking advantage of the, uh, the intelligence, the edge for all things connected. That's a real opportunity for GF. And I think from an industry, as AI starts to really take hold, it'll drive a whole refresh cycle, whether it's routers, local hubs, you know, family uh, connectivity, smart mobile devices, all new ones will, want, will come yeah. out with new features that support AI. And that's a, another opportunity for the, old, the entire industry, including global foundries. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the fact that we're lapping the one year anniversary of the CHIPS Act. Our own Christina Parts Nevelis has been reporting on this uh, all day as well. The fact that there's been all this money that's been allocated, but it hasn't actually uh, been deployed to companies such as yours yet. Your thought on that process and what it's going to take to see some of those investments not only, uh, I guess, be deployed, but actually stand up into money-making entities. So I, I, I take a different view. I think it's a very thoughtful process. That 2022 was the year to rally around, we needed to do this and get the bill passed and funded. 2023 is the thoughtful process of, of vetting all these applications and making sure that it's a holistic approach to creating the supply chain security the CHIPS bill is meant to do, that it's not focused on one company or one type of technology, that it's about creating the, the raw materials that come into to the wafer fabs, and it's also about creating the capacity that take those wafers and make products. And so I, I, I commend the, the commerce team for how they're being very thoughtful in this process, and we'll get to that, that, that funding soon enough. And recall, All the right. CHIPS is a five to 10% funding, the ITC, which is a 25% funding mechanism is already in flight. And so that is something companies like GF and others are already taking advantage of. Okay. 
And I know you work with uh, some very uh, important industrial partners like Lockheed Martin. So when we talk about chips from a national security standpoint and the resiliency of supply chains and moving away from the likes of China, this very much uh, centers or I guess gets gets the heart of that. Tom Caulfield, CEO of Global Foundries. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. We have a breaking news on ESPN and Penn Entertainment. Julia Borson has those details. Hi, Julia. That's right, Morgan. ESPN making a big move further into sports betting. ESPN announced an agreement with Penn Entertainment to launch ESPN Bet. This is going to be a branded sports book for um, within the United States. And Penn Entertainment is going to rebrand its current sports book as ESPN This Bet as ESPN Bet starting this fall in the 16 legalized betting states where Penn Entertainment is licensed. So this is going to be a total rebrand of the mobile app website. Um, as well as the mobile website. Now, one key thing here is that um, this is part, as part of this, Penn is divesting from Barstool Sports to David Portnoy, so selling 100% of the stock that uh, Penn had held in Barstool Sports back to Portnoy. Um, and what's interesting here is that this is actually a rebrand of the Barstool Sportsbook. So if you're familiar with this brand, Barstool Sportsbook will be rebranded as ESPN Bet starting this fall. So uh, deep integration here. And the whole idea here is to make it easier for people who are following sports to bet on those games. Morgan, back over to you. All right. Big news in that space with shares of Penn up something like 18% right now. And of course, it comes less than 24 hours ahead of Disney earnings. Julia Borson, thank you. Lyft's earnings call is kicking off in just a moment. Up next, we'll ask an analyst what he wants to hear from executives. And later, we'll talk to the CEO of Silverstein Properties about the warning from Moody's surrounding banks' exposure to commercial real estate. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. Lyft's stock, it was up double digits. It's now off the highs. It's actually turned slightly negative. The earnings call just moments away. Let's bring in Angelo Zeno, CFRA senior analyst. Angelo, great to have you on. Your initial takeaway from this report, especially given the fact that Lyft did say uh, that it's gained market share despite the tumultuous quarter, despite the competition with Uber. Yeah, I think I think the results were, were OK. I think they were perfectly fine. You kind of look at the numbers at the top line. Sales rose. 3% on basically an 8% increase in active riders. And um, it was pretty much in line with where we expected. I think maybe where the positive surprise came into play was really on the adjusted EBITDA side of things at about 41 uh, million kind of beat the 28 million consensus. Then the guidance on adjusted EBITDA also kind of better than expected. Um, but, you know, the, the stock kind of ran into the numbers anyway. And when you kind of look at um, just look, looking ahead, I think there's still a lot of question marks that really need to be answered as far as the Lyft story is concerned. But I think that at the end of the day, we're kind of looking at an environment here where, you know, Lyft, Lyft cut their their um, their workforce by about 26 uh, percent that was announced back in April on top of a 13 percent workforce reduction late last year. And we've kind of seen a steep uh, pricing decline here over the last two quarters, north of 15%. So they've right-sized, we think, kind of the pricing side of things, as well as, um, you know, the, the overall business model. But now we kind of, the hard work needs to kind of um, take place here over the next couple of quarters and years. So what do you want to hear from David Risher, the still new CEO at the company who is tasked with executing this turnaround? 
Yeah, listen, I think we need to find out how is Lyft going to differentiate itself, right? I mean, we kind of know, you know, they're kind of a distant number two player out there. You've got Uber at kind of about a 70 to 75% share versus uh, that of Lyft out there. But um, they're really kind of, when you're the number two player out there, there's really kind of two ways which you, you can dif- differentiate yourself, right? One is via pricing, and they, they've kind of done some you know, some hard work on the pricing side of things. But the question is, are they continue? Are they going to continue to get more aggressive on the pricing side of things, being that low-cost low provider? Or number two, do they kind of look for ways to kind of offer a better service out there, have, a, you know, a cooler brand out there, kind of what T-Mobile did kind of on the wireless side of things. So I think we kind of want to know what path is, um, Lyft going to want to take here or looking to take care over the next kind of couple of quarters. Got it. And you've got a hold rating and an $11 price target on the stock. Stock right now and after hours trading just above that uh, $11, or I guess $11 and change. Um, compared to a DoorDash or an Uber, you could argue that it's, uh, that it's cheaper or at least uh, there's more, it's more value-oriented with that valuation. What would it take for you to actually feel confident putting a buy rating on this name? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. So as far as Uber is concerned, you know, Lyft relative to Uber, because maybe that's the direct com- competitor out there. You know, we kind of look at things from a free cash flow perspective based on our 2025 20, expectations. So Uber is kind of about 14 to 15 times our view, whereas Lyft is closer to about 12 to 13 times our view. Um, Lyft should be trading at a discount, right? So what we're kind of looking to get a better indication of is whether or not they can kind of see, you know, significant upside potential on the free cash flow side of things. And right now, we don't necessarily see that based on these results, but it'll be interesting to kind of see what the company has to say on the call. Okay. Angela Zeno, thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Time for a CNBC News update with Seema Modi. Hi, Seema. Hey, Morgan. President Biden is creating a national, new national monument near the Grand Canyon. The move will protect sacred indigenous land and permanently ban new uranium mining claims within the nearly one million acre region. Mr. Biden has created four other national monuments during his presidency. Three have been dedicated to land preservation, and the most recent was one honoring Emmett Till. Tens of thousands of scouts are being evacuated by the South Korean government ahead of a typhoon. Scouts from 156 countries arrived for the World Scout Jamboree at the coastal campsite and were already dealing with a heat wave. More than 10,000 buses were brought in to help with the evacuation. Organizers say all the scouts have safely departed, with most being hosted in Seoul. Alice Talk Music, Jay-Z's annual Made in America festival has been canceled. Planned for Philly in early September, festival organizers said they faced, quote, severe circumstances outside of production control, but provided no other information. Lizzo, SZA were scheduled to headline the event. The festival statement mentioned coming back next year and offering refunds. Morgan, back to you. Hmm. All right. Sima Modi, thank you. After the break, Mike Santoli looks at an interesting dynamic that's playing out in the mortgage market that could be putting a cap on economic growth. Plus, the CEO of Silverstein Properties reacts to the Moody's cutting the credit rating of several regional banks because of their exposure to commercial real estate. We're going to get his take on the state of real estate. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. Banks getting hit today after Moody's downgraded several regional banks, including M&T Bank, Pinnacle Financial, and uh, BOK Financial. Others were put under review for a possible rating cut. The credit ratings agency cited ongoing stress in the sector and rising risks in commercial real estate. Michael Santoli is back with a look at other bank stress signals. Mike. 
Yeah, Morgan, at least a condition that in the past has been associated with other banking stress events. This is the very widespread, unusually wide, between the 30-year fixed mortgage rate uh, and the 10-year Treasury yield. Right now, 30-year fixed mortgage national average is a little bit above 7%. We've got 4% 10-year Treasury yields. You see that three percentage point spread really only reached right there in the height of the global financial crisis and got close right there uh, in the COVID crash. Typically, it's more in the zone of like the high you know, 1.8, just under two percentage points difference. Now, a few things going on. One is just the velocity of this increase in yields, in Fed funds that we've seen over the last year or two uh, that has sort of a lot of lenders a little bit uh, a little bit hesitant to extend credit out 30 years. Obviously, also the bank capital issues, the fact that they have unrealized losses in their bond and mortgage portfolios already, that's keeping more uh, banks from going out there and either buying mortgage-backed securities or lending at a tighter spread. And naturally, the Fed is reducing its balance sheet. It's kind of reducing its holdings of mortgage-backed securities. The net effect of it, of course, is that you're having a little more restriction on housing demand than you otherwise would, given the state of the economy and, and credit conditions more broadly. And obviously, it's something that uh, you, know, you can't have a quick fix for uh, unless you just have more reassurance that yields are not going to uh, flare up and that the economy is going to hold together. All right. Mike Santoli, thank you. For more on real estate, let's bring in Marty Berger, Silverstein Properties CEO. Marty, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Morgan. Um, so when I think about Silverstein Properties, uh, I think about this extensive portfolio you have of office space, residential, retail space, but then you also have this capital partners, this real estate lending uh, arm as well. And we just talked about a little bit about commercial real estate. We did see this Moody's downgrade today on the banks talking about commercial real estate as a, as a rising risk uh, for some of those entities. What are you seeing right now across the company in terms of activity and in terms of health of the sector more broadly? Well, it's a challenging time, obviously. Um, interest rates are up, so it puts pressure on all of our cash flows. Um, the residential markets are doing extremely well, and so we're taking advantage of that. The office market, the leasing is slow, mostly because companies just don't know what to do with their space because they're all coming back and, and figuring out what their populations and how they're going to use their space. And uh, other property types like uh, hotel and retail are, are have been recovering, uh, but again, this uh, upward pressure of the interest rates is uh, just uh, challenging us all. Yeah, I mean, how I guess how much further does this correction have to go? We've been talking about it on CNBC. This one and a half trillion dollars in loan maturities that are going to come due over the next, let's call it, three years. Um, how does this dynamic play out? Do we even know yet? How does it compare to previous cycles? Well, it's a tough situation because you'll have a lot of loans mature in the next three years. And when you go to try to finance, refinance those loans, uh, the interest rate coverage won't be there. And so there's going to be a mismatch between valuation and the maturing mortgages. And that's why we're seeing all this pressure on the banking industry. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, are, are you seeing that in some of your own properties right now? Or is there a greater opportunity in terms of that mismatch for you to be able to go out and, and, and make more acquisitions right now and uh, engage in more developments? We've had a couple assets where we had to be proactive and take care of that. And for the most part, we've done that. And we certainly want to take advantage of this dynamic going forward, whether it's buying uh, older office buildings and converting them to retail, uh, to residential, sorry, or um, you know, buying other distressed assets uh, with uh, you know, good prices. Yeah, you did, you did just make an acquisition, 55 Broad Street, which is right down the street from where you're joining me right now uh, in, in Manhattan's financial district. Is there an expectation, and I realize there's rezoning efforts afoot in midtown Manhattan as well. Do you expect that we're going to see more of this office space, given the structural shift 
in office space usage and, and vacancy rates right now in general that we're going to see it converted to residential? You'd certainly expect it. However, it's not the easiest thing to get done. You have to worry about, as you said, zoning, floor plate sizes, um, you know, the age of the building and, and uh, how the mechanical systems work. But it, you will see a lot of it. Okay. Uh, we did talk about this Moody's downgrade on some of the banks. We've seen the regional banks in particular uh, experiencing, experiencing some issues and rethinking their portfolios right now. Is that an opportunity for Silverstein to step in and extend loans? I guess, how are you thinking about that mix in terms of credit moving forward? I mean, to the extent that the, the Fed or the SEC is telling banks to work with good borrowers, that obviously helps us if we have a troubled asset. Most of our assets aren't troubled, but as time goes on and more of our mortgages mature, if interest rates don't come back down, it may become an asset. It may become a problem because we'll have trouble refinancing it. And so you're seeing that, especially in the regional banks, which have such a heavy real estate presence. And uh, so the maturities that come up, they'll have issues with all their loans. Yeah. Final question for you. I mean, I, I think about Silverstein. I think about the World Trade Center. Um, what are you seeing in terms of some of that higher quality, newer office space? I mean, is there a bifurcation in the market in general right now? There certainly is. Even in the Class A properties, there's a big difference between Class A and brand new Class A. When you see buildings like one Vanderbilt or 425 Park, it you know, rents upwards of $250 a foot. Uh, there's certainly a flight to quality. And when people are trying to keep their employees in the office, you want to have the best space possible and the highest, highest technology space you can get. Can we say that we're, we've found the new normal in terms of how office space is being used and the dynamics with work from home? Has it normalized yet? I don't think so. I think people are still trying to figure it out. I think companies are bringing back their employees and, and learning about how they're using this space. And I think we've got at least another year to go before people really feel confident about how the future of office is going to be used. All right, Marty Berger, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Morgan. CEO of Silverstein Properties. Well, coming up, don't miss our interview with the CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals on the back of earnings. We're going to get the latest details on the company's partnership with NVIDIA, which sent that stock soaring last month. And take another look at Pet Entertainment seeing big gains after hours on that news we brought you just moments ago about a new deal with ESPN to launch ESPN Bet. Shares are 21% now. Also, check out DraftKings falling sharply on that same news as a big-name competitor enters the sports betting market. Those shares, DraftKings, those are down 9% right now. Stay with us. Welcome back. Some big gains on weight loss today. Shares of Eli Lilly surging nearly 15% after the company posted a blowout quarter. Revenue was up 28% year over year, and EPS was up nearly 70%. Lilly also raised its full year guidance. Weight loss drug Munjaro contributing nearly a billion dollars in sales, growing from just 16 million a year ago. Don't miss Jim Cramer's interview with Eli Lilly CEO on Mad Money tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. In the meantime, Novo Nordisk shares, those jumped more than 17% after a new study found the company's obesity drug, Wegovi, reduces the risk of heart attacks and strokes by 20%. WW also getting a bump on the back of the news, up 12%, pushing its market cap to more than $700 million. Those shares finishing up 13%. Sticking with healthcare, shares of Recursion staging a turnaround despite posting weaker-than-expected earnings. Recursion is a clinical-stage biotech company using AI to discover new medicines. The company announcing today through its newly acquired technology and partnership with NVIDIA that it was able to map a large database, helping to accelerate the drug discovery process much faster than traditional methods. Now, back in July, shares spiked on news that NVIDIA was investing $50 million in a pipe transaction. Joining us now, again, Recursion CEO Chris Gibson. 
Uh, Chris, it's great to have you back on the show. I guess walk me through the news today. And perhaps more specifically, you have this treasure trove of data. You're thinking about it differently uh, in terms of how you're applying technology and AI to it. How do you make money off of it? Yeah, Morgan, it's great to be back. Good to see you again. I think we were on less than four weeks ago talking about the NVIDIA investment and partnership. And we're back again a few weeks later talking about how we've already leveraged those partners to help us do a set of computations across chemistry and biology, bridging those two worlds that would have taken 100,000 years using a traditional approach. But using NVIDIA's compute resources, their team, our team, and some of these new tools, we've brought that down into, the, into a matter of weeks. And this is helping us put one data layer in place, as you mentioned, among many others that we're building at Recursion, because we ultimately want to change drug discovery from really an artisanal, bespoke process requiring decades of experience and incredible scientists into really a search uh, problem. How do we actually generate large data sets and allow scientists to search those with ease and create data lakes that allow us to learn from every program to make every future program better? And so with earnings this morning, we announced this huge set of predictions that we've made. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, a, a patient doesn't really care whether a drug was discovered the old way or using ML and AI. And so we were also excited to share that, you know, we've added, tightened or accelerated guidance on all five of our clinical programs as well. So I think a good day for recursion. Yeah. And, and just in terms of what this does to the timing of those clinical programs, does it change it or does it just, I guess, suss out the risk versus reward and, and how likely success is to be found through these pipelines? Well, the oft quoted uh, statement in our industry is that it takes 10 to 15 years and more than $2 billion of investment for each new medicine that's discovered. And the, the secret of that is that most of that cost is born in all of the failures. And so failing early on a program, as opposed to failing late when you're in a phase two or phase three trial, I know you cover many of those events, that's really, really important. And so we think bringing these tools uh, early into the process is helping us make sure that we take the right medicine into the clinic. And that's helping us get there faster for lower cost. But ultimately, the most important lever is can we increase the probability of success? Because as you know, 90% of drugs that go into clinical development fail before they make it to the market. And so as I always tell the team, if we could fail 80% of the time across our clinical development plans, we would be twice as efficient as the industry average. And ultimately, that's how over the long run you can help bring down the cost of medicines as well. Yeah, and a, and a shift from, say, 90 to 80% is a very big shift, as at least one analyst pointed out to me. Okay, you have multiple clinical studies going on simultaneously right now, and you are enacting and enabling this new way, this new technological uh, uh, way of, of approaching your pipeline. I, I guess my question is, can you do both at the same time? How do you convince the market that success is nigh? Yeah, it's a great question, Morgan. And I think we've been doing a lot of evangelization and also a lot of team building. We've got a great new chief medical officer, David Morrow, who brings decades of experience to help us build out our clinical development team. That team's been working incredibly hard. Uh, and we also are continuing to hire across the data science, software engineering, biology, and chemistry side. And what we look like, I believe, is the future of what all biopharma companies are going to look like. We look like a team of data scientists and software engineers as much as biologists and chemists. That's the future, not only for our industry, but probably many others. And so, yeah, I think we have to help convince people that this is the future. Okay. And I think we've done a great job and we're confident we can deliver across both the platform, the pipeline and our partnerships as well. All right. Chris Gibson, great to speak with you again. CEO and co-founder of Recursion. Thank you.
Shares finished up almost 5% today. Disney has been a real dud this year, significantly underperforming the Dow. Up next, the key numbers to watch when the media giant reports earnings tomorrow after the bell. Tomorrow brings another huge day of earnings, and Disney is the big name on the calendar. Uh, Julia Borson looks at the key numbers investors will be watching for. Hi, Julia. Well, Morgan, Disney CEO Bob Iger is under pressure to deliver cost-cutting amid an ad contraction as well as a strike. And the media giant is expected to grow revenue 4.6% to $22.5 billion, while earnings per share are projected to decline 11% to $0.97 per share. Another key number to watch is losses at Disney's direct-to-consumer division, uh, which is projected at $759 million after the company warned operating losses in the division would widen by $100 million dollars um, versus the prior quarter. Now, investors also have some Disney-specific concerns, including the underperformance of recent franchise films and reports of declining attendance at its Florida parks in particular. Morgan, this is going to be a really interesting one to watch tomorrow. Yeah, and we'll be covering it here in overtime. That's going to do it for us here. Fast Money begins right now.